Hey there, John. How are you? Hi, Glenn. That's how we start the Glenn and John conversations at the Glenn Show. You are at the Glenn Show. This is Glenn Laurie Brown University. I'm talking with John McWhorter, my regular conversation partner every other week. He's at Columbia University. He also writes a column twice a week <laughs> for the New York Times. And he's been tearing up of late. Uh, and uh, I teach economics and uh, international affairs here at Brown. Uh, we talk about race and other such things. And I guess that's uh, what we're talking about. We're talking about today. Uh, so, John, welcome. And uh, what's up? Thanks for having me, Glenn. And I guess all sorts of things are up. Um, one of them might be, what's the last column I did? The last column was about Herschel Walker, who is a, a black man who's being elevated as a candidate from Georgia for the United States Senate. And the problem with Herschel Walker is that, you know, there, there are two things about him. One, he's black. Great. Two, He's a moron. Um, or oh to, my God, John! You're calling a be, candidate for the U.S. Senate. Come on, man. You could just be more say, delicate about it. Yeah, please, please be more no delicate. More, he knows no more about the issues of the day than either of my children. Nothing. He oh, doesn't come on. know anything. Okay. okay. He has no interest, and more to the point, doesn't even seem to be aware that he is supposed to indicate. The interest. I have no idea what his IQ is, but he clearly is hopelessly, glaringly unqualified, unqualified to be a senator in any sense. There's no learning curve possible. Doesn't even know how he's supposed to fake it. Just no, no blessed idea. And I find it offensive because what what's basically going on is that is that they're putting him against a Democratic black incumbent, and the idea is to hope that enough black voters will be swayed by his erstwhile celebrity and his blackness to vote him in so that they will be a Republican. Because to the extent that he has views at all, they are Republican views. And therefore, to get rid of poor Raphael Warnock. But it's insulting you know, to put somebody up there who is clearly unqualified solely because of the color of his skin. And yet these are the Republicans who think that we're supposed to be getting past race and evaluating people according to the content of their character and being, quote unquote, colorblind. It's just the expression these days is it's not a good look. And that was my last piece. Well, you said that with such relish, John. You took such pleasure in calling this man a moron. And you're insulted. This is the thing that I find is interesting. And a number of thoughts occurred to me. One is, how could he possibly have secured the nomination if he's such an idiot? You say you're insulted, and I assume that means you think that the Republican Party has so little respect for the intelligence of black people that uh, they pander for their votes by appointing this, quote, moron whose main qualification is his blackness in an effort to uh, uh, unseat a, another black man because that's the opponent on the other side, and Georgia has a significant black vote. Uh Okay. I mean, that is what I mean. And I want people watching or listening to this to understand because I have such an imperious man manner about me. <laughs> I'm not saying he's a moron because he's not an intellectual. That's not what I mean. What I mean is that this is somebody whose professed 
<laughs> statements, professed views about the issues of the day are so utterly uninformed that you're shocked that he's been put before any kind of audience. And more to the point, he doesn't even seem to know it. He seems rather proud of himself. He's utterly out of his element. Give us some examples. Case. I know that I should be somehow, I feel, John, like I should be defending Herschel Walker here. But, you know, that's a heavy lift. Why don't you give us some examples of, of, of uh, his ineptness? Well, for example, he was asked about how he felt about Biden's um, bipartisan infrastructure bill. And his answer, you know, with the microphones in his face was, well, what I like to do is look at it and something oh, and yeah, stuff. He that's what he says. Oh, but literally, and something and stuff. Yes, that's Quote what he unquote. said. That's, that's, a, that's actually what he said, and something and stuff. And he didn't know. I mean, he generally doesn't know. You're supposed to at least be able to fake an answer. And you're not supposed to get offended, as he did after that, that he was being pressed on it, saying it's just not fair. You know, I, I haven't looked at the details. As if he is, it's wrong to expect him to read the news. Or another example is um, he's under the impression, I didn't put this in the piece, that what's going on with climate change and what needs to be done here is a matter of that the United States has the best air in the world. We've got the best air. <laughs> China has the worst air. And what happens is that because of wind patterns, <laughs> our good air blows over to China and there's not enough room for the good air. And so the bad air comes here. And this is what he said about our problems with pollution. And all of this is with okay. not only a straight face, but a certain kind of childlike pride that he That's came up with an answer at all. Ugh. Ugh. Just that person shouldn't be a senator. There are many things that person can be. But how dare they put this person forward? How did he end up getting nominated? I, I really don't understand that. Uh, I don't believe your simplistic story, which is Republicans got in the room and decide they're going to play black people. Uh, I don't doubt that there is an aspect to it. But I mean, there must have been a, a primary contest. Did you and your staff look into the predicate? You know how how it came to be that he was the that he was the candidate. Mm hmm. You know, I don't I mean, is know. There, the excuse me. Is there a Tea Party thing going on here? I mean, who who are the faction who are Herschel Walker supporters? Where does his support come from within the Republican Party? Right. Where did where did this start? I don't know that exactly. backstory. And I'd like to know, did he put himself forward? Exactly. I mean, he clearly has no interest in politics. But so I gather somebody chose and cultivated him. Trump is backing him. But yes, how did all of this begin? I don't know that story. I, you know, there must be a backstory. So he has some kind of business career or something. He was a distinguished football player. I mean, you know, give him his due on the field. And so he had that celebrity uh, and he's he's a Republican. What are his social issue uh, uh, beliefs? Is he a Christian or whatever? Well, he, what does he profess on the culture, he, on the culture issue? I'm just trying to understand yeah, who he is. Yeah. He has a big issue with um, deadbeat dads. He doesn't like he thinks that the black community has a particular problem with black men leaving their you know, children behind. But then it turned out that there were no fewer than three children that he has had outside of wedlock that he had not told even his staff about, you know, unaware, apparently, that especially in the Internet era, these things are going to be dug up or even before. And he's just he's utterly naive. You, you, you can't hide something like that. It's going to be found out. Well, we and it have also to worry about him. We shouldn't have to worry about him getting elected then, right? Well, you know, it's been 
often he's been 50-50 with Warnock. It That's seems what I heard, like and I wanted, to, I wanted to get you to react to that. I mean, how is it? I, my first question was, how did this guy, this moron, get nominated? I think there's got to be an interesting story there. And my second question is, how could he possibly be in contention? <laughs> well, remember, there's a certain, uh, there's a celebrity factor. For some people, his... Um, disarming smile will be interpreted as some kind of genuineness or honesty or, you know, childlike down-to-earthness or something like that. And for a lot of people, it's about charm. It's about charisma. And then there's also his idea that he has novelty on his side. And I'm not sure what he thinks he's bringing to the table other than the sheer fact of being new, but the idea is that he's not a politician and therefore presumably he's untainted and or will have fresh ideas, such as about how you know, pollution works. And so he says that, you know, we need somebody who will have new ideas, somebody who hasn't been, you know, doing nothing for decades about these situations. And so, you know, in the same way that Trump's charisma had a lot to do with many people voting for him, you could say that that would work for Herschel Walker too. And racial, you know, racial, racial loyalty, a black person who's tired of the same old thing, but wants a black person to vote for and likes football. I, I can see how that would hold it at 50-50 for a while. However, he said so many utterly ridiculous things in public at this point that I think the mania is slipping. But still, okay, the fact that I'm going to make the case for Herschel Walker. I, I just had an idea. I'm going to make the case for Herschel Walker. I'm going to stipulate everything that you said about his competency. Mm-hmm. It's probably debatable around the margin, but it's probably solid, you know, in, in, at its base. I mean, he, he, he looks like he's a lightweight, <laughs> a term that we have <laughs> used here at the Glitch Show from time to time. And in this case, there can be no doubt. Yes. But, but here's what I want to say. I want to say that it's probably complicated and the nature of his appeal, he, he can't be a threat unless he has some appeal. And I think we have to reckon with that. I mean, uh, if at the end of the day, he's simply uh, not carrying anybody's message, he'll be trounced in the election by a guy who's a pastor of a church and organizer and activist and a very capable man who, you know, and we don't have anything to worry about. If, if indeed he has a chance of winning, there must be something going on. So he's signaling or being an avatar for something. He, he's representing something. And that's the thing to kind of try to focus on. You, you put your finger on it, I think, with respect to Trump. Trump's out there acting an ass. Trump's out there saying ridiculous stuff. Trump has all this baggage. And yet the Christian right flocked to him and he gets fucking elected. Mm-hmm. Trump is Trump and, you know, he's an idiot, he's a moron, he's a, you know, you can go into your thing about Trump. But the fact is that the thing that he represented or embodied was a part of the democracy. It was a part of this. It's a part of the political situation. That's why I ask about uh, Walker's position on social issues. I don't know what he thinks about the border. I don't know how he talks about capitalism, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but. Uh, you know, I don't know what he says about uh, uh, who's a woman, you know, and those kinds of things about CRT in the schools, about the 1619 Project, about those kinds of things. Is he a Christian? I mean, and I'm not, I'm not, you know, please, 
I'm not advocating any kind of Christian nationalism. I'm just saying that could be a part of a package. The man might pray. If he prays, some people are going to really be responsive to that, regardless of what his IQ is. So I, I think candidate selection and candidate success are the things to focus on here. What was going on in the Republican Party that led to this? Perhaps it's exactly as cynical as you say. Big money guys in Georgia politics on the Republican side said, the reason we want this guy, he wins the primary because he's got the big money guys behind him, is we're going to play him like a puppet and he's going to be our blackface uh, emblem. That could be the story. But it might be a Tea Party kind of story where activist zealots who are extremely pro-life and extremely, you know, anti-woke, uh, fastened on to this uh, guy as the guy that was carrying their water for him. Anyway, I've been talking too long. Uh, but you see what I'm getting at, John? That was that's <laughs> I do. And I think what has offended me so much about him is that I don't think that there is any more of a story in his case. He's not particularly about anything. Like, for example, I see how you're casting him as perhaps very Christian. As I, I don't many, know that for a fact. I just want to know. I don't but know that might for a fact. He might have this whole message about being born again or about how we need to go back to God. But actually, he doesn't. That doesn't seem to be his thing. If anything, the only message he seems to have is that he had certain you know, mental troubles about 20 years ago, and he claims to have gotten past these sorts of demons. He's been borderline violent, given to rages often against women. I don't think he's on record as having oh actually gosh. hurt anyone, but he's he has scared people. He had some issues with that, and he's come back from it. But to be honest, he doesn't talk about it in an especially, you know, enlightening or moving way. But that's the quirk about him. Other than that, he's somebody who played football very well 30 years ago, who is being elevated because, you know, he would look good on a t-shirt. I really don't see the there there that you can even kind of hesitantly identify in a Trump. He's just a he's just a, a, a doll. And that's not how Black people are supposed to be represented, I think. What kind of response have you gotten to this? Uh, have, have you heard from his campaign or any anything like that? No, no, I haven't. <laughs> That's funny because when you write for the Times, you hear about whoever you, you write about usually. No, I don't think I'm going to hear from any of them. That one really seems to have gotten around, I think, because I was in a mood and made a few attempts at humor. And so that one seems to get around partly because people seem to enjoy me making fun of people. That happened with Trump on MSNBC, and I did several segments back then. But um, I don't think it's going to make any difference. But I, 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 I want people to, to know this column that takes down Herschel Walker is absolutely brilliant. It's exquisitely written. You, you know, you will have Thank fun. You. It'll take you a couple of minutes to get the 1,500 words under your belt, but you will, you will <laughs> enjoy the time. It's time well spent. Uh, so I want to talk about another black public figure, and that's Clarence Thomas, Justice Thomas of the United States Supreme Court, and a letter, get your commentary on this, John, that uh, was uh, published in uh, Real Clear Politics, uh, and that will be disseminated further in uh, other ways that uh, uh, denounces the vitriolic and racist vilification uh, of this man that has uh, poured forth it, particularly in the aftermath of their decision overturning Roe, the court's decision. Um, and the uh, use of these Uncle Tom and 
as if his racial identity, Uncle Clarence, the use of the N-word on Twitter in uh, reference to the, uh, to the justice, the pronouncements of uh, celebrities like Samuel L. Jackson or uh, the women at The View or, or many others uh, on Thomas, the reference to his wife's race that has crept in in a, in a way uh, that is uh, swarmy and, uh, and mean. That's the word you like, John. Uh, and some of us decided, uh, John, uh, I should say, Bob Woodson and myself initiated a, a signature campaign that has gotten hundreds of people to respond, African-Americans to affirm the uh, civility and decency that we think should accompany public discussion without questioning whether or not uh, he's right or wrong on this or that, Clarence Thomas, Justice Thomas, right or wrong on this or that uh, jurisprudential judgment, but simply to say we denounce uh, this, uh, this kind of rhetoric. And uh, I was very glad to count you among the signatories of that open letter Defending Justice Clarence Thomas, not because of his, we agree with his opinions, but because we uh, deplore, uh, you know, you're going to use the N-word in reference to Justice Thomas. You're, you're going to say uh, that he's an Uncle Tom because you don't agree with his judicial opinions. Anyway, I'm sorry, John. Obviously, I'm exercised. Sorry. <laughs> you know, there is a larger lesson in a lot of those tweets and comments, the N-word being used. I think we should be aware that it's not mostly tweets saying, well, he's just an N-word. That's not what it is. It's things like his wife is gonna call him the N-word when they have an argument, or, you know, here he is, just another house N-word, etc. What those people are doing is not saying God damn it, Clarence Thomas is a nigger. That's not what they're saying. What they're doing is they're quoting somebody who would call him that. Now, what's interesting is that they feel free to do it. So, you know, Jenny's gonna call him a nigger when they have an argument. And you know, we've all heard that line about interracial couples, but what they're doing is they are speaking in the voice of somebody who's using the word. You are imitating, you are quoting supposedly what you know Virginia Thomas would say. You are quoting somebody who would call him a field nigger. You're not calling him a field nigger. Now, I don't think it takes any great insight to distinguish between those two things, although the fact that suddenly these people are using and printing the word is interesting, and this is why it's interesting. Here are these people who think it's okay to use that word in a public forum against him, but these are the same people who, if some other person out in public says, why did James Baldwin use the word nigger? Or isn't it a terrible thing for someone to be called nigger? Or here is this book called Huckleberry Finn, where the word nigger is used a lot. Or here is this person on the Glenn Show using the word nigger over and over again, etc. Those are people who will all of a sudden not have any sense, will pretend not to have any sense of the difference between calling somebody that and referring to the word. Even if you're criticizing the word, you can't even utter the two syllables. And for them, all cases are using the N-word. 
But then suddenly when it's about Clarence Thomas, you can say things like Jenny is going to call him a nigger. Doesn't he know that he's a field nigger, et cetera, et cetera. I find that absolutely repulsive because you just know that those people writing those tweets and saying those things are exactly the people who would happily watch somebody get fired for referring to that word in a class. I think it's just, it's, it's hypocrisy. I think there is a certain basic linguistic sensitivity that you could apply in both cases. Why'd you sign the letter? I signed it because I think that the general tone of the way he's being written about, and it's beyond just the N-word. It's, yeah. it's referring to her race at all. It's calling him an Uncle Tom, etc. All of that is unfair. All of it is the sort of thing that happens over beer at a barbecue. But those things being public statements, no, it, it's too much. It's um, Clarence Thomas doesn't deserve that, even if you disagree with his um, judicial opinions. But I do think that most of the tweets that I read, I'm using the N-word, were layered language. It wasn't a bunch of people just calling him the N-word. They were layered language. Nevertheless, the larger picture is extremely unpleasant. So yeah, I signed the letter. As you know, I had to take a deep breath. I wasn't sure at first, but I did. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, I want to comment. So I I think some of the N-word uses would be on the, the boundary that you described of a use in reference to its use, mm -hmm. but constituted calling him an N-word as you, uh, as you noted. I mean, some of them did, but most of them did not. Um, but I want to talk about Thomas as an African-American icon and the lack of a sense of, if you had said this about Barack or Michelle Obama, there would be outrage. People would be injured by it. You know, it, not just calling somebody a racist because they use a certain word in reference to Barack or Michelle, but really like a feeling of disappointment that these African-American icons do not garner the reverence and deferential respect which they've earned. You bought the Obama campaign and, you know, you were very excited about Obama's elevation. And part of that had to do with him being a black man. And I don't discredit his blackness, but you understand it's complicated. And uh, regardless of his politics, you, he, he represented something for you. Now, Clarence Thomas is black. He's not just black. He's very black. <laughs> In the sense of... Look at the root there. Look at what the root of it is. It's the Geechee dialect on the sea islands of Georgia, man. It's a step from slavery, man. He ascends to the highest pinnacle of American government for decades. This is independent of his jurisprudential philosophy. This is not about original intent. This is about blackness within the context of America, about the black experience. He embodies something. If we can't get past left and right, feminist and uh, Christian uh, uh, moralist as African-Americans, 
and see the value of this man's contribution to our history. If we let the blemish of Anita Hill obscure 30 years of service at the top of American government, if we allow the fact that he's a Catholic to color our appreciation of this life, come on, man, let's stay in touch with reality of this black life. So I'm sorry. You cannot call him an Uncle fucking Tom on my watch. You can't do that, man, because you're denigrating the real experience of African-Americans on behalf of ideological theory. Devil's advocate. A lot of people would say that he reached that post and then works against what they would call black interests. And then there's this human tendency to demonize. And so they make up this figure of the Uncle Tom, of the deliberate sabotager of black interests who has gotten his and is going to make sure that the rest of us don't get ours, etc. People like that cartoon figure. But more to the point, they think he got to that place and then pulls in the ladder and doesn't help the rest of us and crusades against affirmative action, crusades against policies that help the poor, including black people, doesn't want to talk about or acknowledge racism in society, thinks you just need to get past it, etc. And so as far as they're concerned, he doesn't count as a resonant figure in black history. He is a traitor. He's somebody who used an opportunity, an opportunity that he was given. And let's face it, I'm not saying this against him. He got it as a token. We both know that. He wasn't chosen because of the depth of his experience. He was chosen because they wanted to replace Thurgood Marshall, but they wanted to do it with somebody who had Republican views, and they picked him out of relative obscurity. Nobody was under the impression that he, if he were white, would have been chosen for that role at that time. I think even he would not deny this. So he gets in that way. And then once he has that opportunity, he does not do what Thurgood Marshall did. Can you have no sympathy with those views? I frankly think that the things he's doing can be interpreted as pro-black. I do not revile him for his judicial philosophy, but you and I are, are, are a little strange. I mean, can't, can't you imagine how it looks to all of these other people? I was glad to hear you say that last uh, at the end where, because I was so kind of disappointed, but you did such a good job of articulating the disappointment. I think of Judge Higginbotham, Judge Leon Higginbotham, whom I knew not well, not well, but he was a professor at the Harvard Law School for a while while I was at Harvard in the 80s. And he was writing this big book on the history of race and American law going all the way back to colonial times. And uh, he, he wrote a, a very powerful, and, and, and I think he thought of himself as Thurgood Marshall's successor, and not without reason. He was, I think, circuit court in uh, uh, Pennsylvania and uh, something. He was a federal judge at a high level, but never got to the Supreme Court. Timing was off for him. Uh, Higginbotham, Leon Higginbotham. But he, he embodies, as you spoke, I thought of him. As you were saying, why is he so disappointed in Clarence Thomas? I thought of him. Uh, Thurgood Marshall's seat. I mean, of course, you know, Thomas's appointment is what you said it was. I mean, he was picked pick from obscurity. He's black. 
I, I think you will appreciate that one should be careful and I think generous when one talks about the impact of affirmative action on all of our life courses. You don't want to preclude, I'm sure, John, the ability to come to a negative judgment when thinking about affirmative action as a black person, preclude that ability because I or any black person will have one at one step or another been benefited by affirmative action. That doesn't make you or me a hypocrite, doesn't make Tom, Clarence Thomas a hypocrite. But I, I see, I, I, you know, and, I, and I think of Justice uh, Marshall's uh, great speech in Hawaii in 1987 on the occasion of the bicentennial of the ratification of the U.S. Constitution, where he decried this originalist philosophy of which Thomas is an adherent. This is before he was on the court, uh, but Scalia and uh, Bork before him, who was not confirmed, but this and, and decried and said the Constitution was flawed from the very start. I mean, I know this. And forgive me, because I was in Bill Bennett's office at the Department of Education in Washington, D.C., when Thurgood Marshall gave that speech because I was being interviewed for the possibility of an appointment as Bennett's deputy. And I remember the reaction of all of the neocons like William Crystal, who was sitting around. Uh, I don't remember who some of the others were in, in Bennett's office and appalled that Marshall would go on the bicentennial of the Constitution and give a speech that. Uh, you know, the Constitution was flawed from the very beginning, which, of course, we can all say is true today without, without any. Anyway, I'm, I'm sorry to go on so long. I want to say I appreciate the left legal African-American freedom fighter, civil rights advocate uh, reaction to having, there's only going to be one, African-American Supreme Court justice following in the shoes of who abetted this great revolution of the 1950s and early 60s, Marshall, um, and then going in a conservative direction. I, I, I appreciate that people are disappointed that he's not representing them on the court. That, that's mm -hmm. what this comes down to. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to say this. The Supreme Court of the United States is not a representative institution. It, it, its function is not democratic. So I, I think the expectation that he couldn't be a conservative and still be an authentic and, as it were, loyal black person, I, I think that's mistaken. I, I think it, it is... Uh, a mistake as a consequence of a of, of, of false understanding of the actual nature of his obligation, of his obligation to black people. He is a concert violinist. He is a, a master of, the, of uh, artistry, of, of craft. He's an architect. He, 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 I mean, I'm saying his professional expression does not have to be uh, tethered to the narrative of African-American freedom and liberation. He, he, can be, he can be what he is, which is, uh, first of all, a conservative Catholic. Second of all, a 
strict constructionist originalist of constitutional interpretation. And thirdly, a deeply conservative in terms of political philosophy and so forth uh, person. That's permissible. That's not a betrayal of blackness. That is one of the paths. Hell, I mean, I have a great deal of sympathy for some of this conservatism myself. I don't expect you necessarily to share it, but I'm saying you can't tell me I'm not black for that or I'm not representing in the sense of representation that I think is relevant here, which is so going forward into the world and making an imprint that comes up out of your origins and your experience as a black person. That kind of, I mean, you know, so, so don't make African-Americans the, the, the uh, playthings of the left in this conversation. We, we're, our root is deeper than that. It's prior to that. I completely agree. I have never been able to share the recreational hostility towards Clarence Thomas that people like us are supposed to have. Um, where he sits strikes me as thoroughly authentically black, especially if you go before roughly 1966. And um, I've always been disappointed that he didn't speak as much as the other justices. It, it, it makes him look dumb, which he is not by any means. I mean, he not has by a long shot, man. Excuse me no. for interrupting, but he's one of the most significant jurists in the 20th, yes. 21st century. He has a significant body of jurisprudence, and you'd never know it from the fact that he doesn't talk. Now, from what I hear, Amy um, Coney Barrett doesn't talk a whole lot or very interestingly either. So now there are two justices who are not extremely loquacious, but it used to be that it was only him. And I, I didn't like it. However, it does not reflect anything about his judicial philosophy. But um, you and I are odd, Glenn. I mean, we're really odd, as in um, Randall Kennedy who has been on your show and with yeah, us. Yeah, my friend, law, my friend Randy. Harvard, yeah. Harvard law professor. And, yeah. you know, I um, reviewed his um, anthology. It's called Say It Loud um, about six months ago. And I, re I did read it from cover to cover. And so I got a good heavy dose of where Kennedy stands on things. And, you know, it's not it's not a loud book. You know, as we both know, Randall Kennedy is not yeah. a loud person. He's extremely temperate. The one thing in that book where, where and thoughtful and brilliant, one place where passion comes out, where he bares his teeth and things seem to go beyond the strictly logical, the strictly rational, is he despises Clarence Thomas. That temperate, brilliant, meticulous person, when Thomas comes up, Kennedy is just a snarling dog. That shows how deeply seated the idea is that there is a black way to be a Supreme Court justice that is antithetical to things such as conservatism, Catholicism, and being an originalist. If Randall Kennedy can't handle it, no one, no one can. We're just, we're, we're odd men out. And so that's what I find myself thinking. But frankly, I think you and I are right on this. I think that we are beyond our time. Kennedy clerked for Marshall. He loved the mm -hmm. Supreme Court and he loved Thurgood Marshall, Randall Kennedy, and you know, but I hear you. I hear you loud. And he is, he's very reasonable. He's left. He's very self-consciously left, which is fine. But, but he, on the race questions, is a very thoughtful and balanced and serious man. I, I think mm -hmm. we can agree on that. So his vitriol toward Thomas is noteworthy and it has been noted. 
This is a really interesting development. Podcasts have changed the way you get your news, entertainment, politics, everything. They have rewritten the script, literally. Well, there's another exciting development that's rewriting the script, too. It's called Masterworks. Masterworks enables you to diversify your investment portfolio and potentially protect it from market volatility by investing in contemporary art. There, the fintech startup, shaking up the alternative investing landscape, letting you build a portfolio of fine art without spending millions of dollars. Basquiat, Picasso, Warhol, Invest in paintings by iconic artists like these with Masterworks. Their industry-leading research team has created the first and only platform where anyone can buy and trade shares of paintings, giving you the same access enjoyed by some millionaires and billionaires for generations. And Glenn Show listeners get priority access to their latest offerings at masterworks.art forward slash Glenn. That's masterworks.art slash Glenn. So join a new generation of investors at masterworks.art slash Glenn. See important disclaimers at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. Um, uh, he's a nice man. I want people, I want us to link to Gerald Early's essay reflecting on his experience at the old Parkland conference in Dallas that took place in May. Uh, that was a gathering of people concerned about the future of black Americans and, uh, wanting to hear ideas with a conservative uh, pedigree uh, that were uh, pointing toward, uh, toward the future. Jason Riley of the Wall Street Journal and the Manhattan Institute, Ian Rowe of the American Enterprise Institute, Shelby Steele of the Hoover Institution, and your humble servant here of uh, representing Manhattan Institute and the Hoover Institution were the organizers of a day and a half conference. I'll stop. Justice Thomas attended the entire conference. I spent a substantial amount of time with him. Hmm. Gerald Early spent a substantial. Gerald is an African-American, a man of letters, a professor of the humanities at Washington University in St. Louis, and an estimable intellectual observing uh, black affairs, uh, you know, throughout the last uh, uh, epoch. Gerald is a serious guy. And I'm sure he would count himself a progressive. And he came to the conference as, uh, for a reportage. He, he came to observe. Uh, and he writes a long essay. Uh, I'm sorry that I don't remember exactly where it is, but we will link to it, in which he describes the conference. And he spends a fair amount of time describing his encounter with Justice Thomas and concludes again, regardless of his jurisprudential philosophy, that he's a nice guy, that he's a sweet guy, that he's a down-to-earth guy, that, that he's a decent man. This is how he comes across. 
The fact that he had friendships with people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Sonia Sotomayor of the U.S. Supreme Court as colleagues. I mean, not just casual say hello as you pass in the hallway, but really warm belly laugh kind of uh, enjoying each other's company. One of early signature lines in this essay describing this conference is that if you've heard Clarence Thomas laugh, you're not likely to forget it. You know, isn't that a wonderful way of putting that? There's a heartiness, an earthiness, an authenticity, a, a, a decency, a humanity in the laugh. We are talking here at the Glenn Show about the laughter of Justice Clarence Thomas because he's a human being, not a poster uh, to paint various political slogans on. But yeah. in any case, I'm just saying, I'm just saying he's a nice guy, and that's another reason not to be, you know, I, I'll, I'll stop. <laughs> no, you're, I've met him a couple of times. And I have often said that a lot of people would feel differently about him exactly because of that laugh, because of the way even the media tends to choose photos of him. You imagine him as this kind of glowering, jolly person. But the thing that stands out the most about him when you meet him is he's got that big belly laugh. And I should say it's not a nervous laugh. Some people laugh a lot because they're kind of uncomfortable in other people's company. No, he's quite comfortable and he has a big laugh. And I should say it's a black laugh. He has a big, black, southern, male, ha-ha, belly laugh. That's the kind of person he is. Another thing he is that I think would surprise some people, given the way they tend to crop photos of him, he's not tall. You know, he's not an enormous, an enormous, menacing fellow. He's not, he's, I would put him at you know, maybe 5'9", or something like that. He's not the tallest man in the room, and he's got this big, happy laugh. You would never know that he is this devil, you know, which he's not, that people talk about. And I think really if you know, more people could see that, they'd realize that they're creating a cartoon character. However, Glenn, I have to call you on something. Yes, Thomas is a wonderful fellow when you meet him. And it, it should matter in how you evaluate him. But notice that when I say the same thing about Al Sharpton. Al Sharpton. Oh, you you can't be bothered. I keep on saying, you know, he's <laughs> nice and genuine. <laughs> but no, no, you Touché. can't forgive what he did in 1987. I'm you, just saying. You got you know. me, man. You got me. I'm going to have to rethink <laughs> that. I do have to rethink that because you're right. Uh, Anita Hill is 1991. And the Clarence <laughs> Thomas, the uh, Al Sharpton stuff is almost as old, if it's not as old. And. Cannot a man outlive and move on? And can we not judge him by the full measure of his life? And et cetera, et cetera. And if you were in his company, you just might enjoy his company. I've not been in Al Sharpton's company, so I don't know <laughs> the answer to that question. So I concede the point without equivocation. <laughs> I need to I need to reevaluate. And maybe I'm the Randall Kennedy of, of Al Sharpton's world. You know, I'm, I'm the guy who just won't forgive him. <laughs> Won't make any space in my heart for <laughs> I had to bring it up. <laughs> Let's talk about this woman at the law school at the University of Pennsylvania. My friend, I have to say that I cannot, I cannot abandon this woman uh, at this moment. I've known her and we've had a, this is Amy Wax, professor at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. I've known her for a long time. In my earlier phase, when I was the staunch left of center, anti-incarceration, raving madman, early aughts. 
middle aughts. Uh, I thought Amy was a lunatic and a nut and a, and a, and a heartless right-wing person. I went to the University of Pennsylvania Law School, I'll be brief, and gave a lecture. The year was 2010. And uh, I, I said, there are too many black people in prison. And she said, they're not enough. In the q and I beg to differ, Professor Lowry, they're not enough blacks in prison. Quote, unquote, quote, unquote. And I took such offense at that, I wrote a letter to the dean. When I got back, I was visiting at Columbia that year. You remember that year. We oh, had this dinner. Was then. That's right. 2010-11. Yeah. And That's I wrote back, period. and I wrote back to the dean, and I said, this woman is a racist. And I'm outraged. That was my early encounter with um, Amy Wax. I since became fond of her, John. Good God, God forgive me. I mean, we interacted in one form or another. She came on the podcast. She said some things. She did. She wrote something. She wrote this book that I thought was not half bad, Race, Wrongs, and Remedies, that I thought was not half bad. 2005. Um, She's a provocateur. She's throwing bombs. Sometimes I, I want the bombs thrown because I think the thing needs to be shaken up. You know, I think the issue of, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion really does deserve to be fair. I think the immigration question deserves to be. Yeah, so. uh, the uh, crime question and uh, public safety and stuff, you know, it deserves. I, and, and so and plus, I'm this free speech guy who says, let a thousand flowers bloom and don't, you know, so. I've had her on as a guest here at the Glen Show on a number of occasions, and I've called her my friend, and I can't stop calling her my friend now. Because to me, that would be kind of dishonorable. It would be like, oh, I, you know, now I'm going to run and hide, you know, from this. Now, why do I need to hide? Again, I'll be brief. She said something. She said she didn't think the black kids in her classes and her experience were up to snuff. They tended to cluster at the bottom, and, she, you know, I could be more specific. She's, she thinks there are too many Asians. She thinks Asian immigration is a problem for the country. And she said this on my podcast. She's gotten into trouble for saying it. Huge backlashes, campaigns all over the place. I've had to devote some energy to the differentiating my position from her position. Uh, she flirts with these ideas about racial differences in intelligence. She has given space to Jarrett Taylor, a noted white supremacist. If I call him that, people are going to get mad and they're going to correct me. He's not a white supremacist. Okay. Nationalist, I mean, you find your name for him. Just go Jarrett Taylor and look him up. American Renaissance. Um, and, and she's, you know, she's kind of in, in, in bed with these people. How do I put that? How do I want to put this? She would call herself a racial realist. I hope I don't misstate her view. She thinks there are differences, uh, natural differences between population descended groups of the sort that Charles Mary discusses in his book, Human Diversity. Uh, she thinks that's relevant to some of the inequality issues. I think I'm fair, I, I'm, I'm being fair in saying this. She ad advocates for a return to bourgeois, and I, I'm sorry for going on so long, but people should know what we're talking about for a return to bourgeois values. She says, you know, the American civilization of the 1940s and 50s kind of worked and, and some of the tried and true norms that have been since abandoned on behalf of liberation of one sort or another, uh, are, uh, they, they served us very well. 
she notes the cultural differences between populations that she thinks are important for the deliberations over uh, questions of policy and, and contemporary politics. She's a conservative. She's arch. She, she's uh, prickly. She's, she's sometimes, it looks to me, sometimes performing her uh, heresy. I mean, you know, she's doing it in a way to provoke. I, not entirely, but sometimes it, so it seems to me. Um, and so now she's in trouble. The, her dean at the law school has initiated a formal procedure at the University of Pennsylvania that would have her sanctioned in some serious way, possibly, I suppose, including dismissal. That's a heavy lift, but she's accused of creating a climate in her classrooms that is hostile for students. She's accused of abusing her uh, privilege of uh, uh, access to information about students without their permission on behalf of her uh, research uh, program. Uh, she's accused of using the imprimatur of the University of Pennsylvania to uh, advance views that are uh, uh, reprehensible and uh, unbecoming of the, of the values and the integrity of the university brand. And uh, she's in the dock. So, okay, that was a review of the situation of Amy Wax and my relationship with her. John, thank you for allowing me that. It's important. She's hard because it, it forces you to think about what you consider the limits to be. Yes, free speech. However, nobody can seriously say that they're in favor of free speech about absolutely everything. I assume that we're not going to seriously discuss whether slavery is okay, etc. The, the issue is where, where do you draw the line because life is short and intellectual history advances. And with Amy, the problem is, I've always known that she said things that were um, controversial, such as in her 2005 book, where she'll say something like, there comes a point if somebody gets hit by a truck that only they can teach themselves how to walk again. The other person can't do it for you. For a lot of people, that's a very offensive statement. And frankly, it shouldn't be. There do need to be credentialed people who make points like that in accessible books. But you know, over the past 10 years, she's gone in some directions. So, for example, the students clustering in the bottom of her classes, the black students. Now, frankly, that's true. I think Dean Ruger's little dance that he does where he implies that that's a lie is the sort of thing that people in his position have to do. He's lying. He knows damn well that that clustering is the case. The issue is why you bring it up and whether you talk about it as something that needs to be fixed. Amy doesn't. And so by omission, you can't help thinking that what she's really saying is that these students shouldn't be admitted at all. Now, free speech, okay, but if that's what you mean, one, be clearer about what your implications are. And she tends to stop without doing that. And that's why you're saying it seems to be kind of a performance, but I have a problem with that. And two, if she did take it all the way and say what she was implying, is this something that we would be comfortable discussing? And then you go even further the point about Asians, I take it, is that we should have fewer Asians because they tend to vote Democratic and therefore push the country in a, a wokish direction. I'm not sure how that even corresponds to fact, frankly. And so it's a little odd to see somebody so brilliant and credentialed throwing a bomb like that, that unlike the business of the black students clustering, doesn't really seem to make a whole lot of sense. And then on top of everything, what I didn't know until this letter, I didn't know this at all. 
I didn't know that Amy was given to saying these things in front of her students and on a regular basis. Not just one thing, but she regularly, you have to give her credit for coming clean, says these things in front of classes where lots of the faces are brown and, if I may, yellow. And so things like reading, you know, an alphabetical list of the names doing some kind of roll call and three or four of them are foreign names. And then she gets to somebody named Jackson or Smith and says, oh, finally, an American name. And believe me, there are advantages to being American. To say that in front of a class, and it's not just that one thing. It's a whole series of recount, recountings. Now, a bit of me worries because of the way these things go, especially when you're talking about, say, cop killings, where I've learned that you have to be skeptical. Frankly, often with claims of overt racism in university settings, you have to be careful, too, because, frankly, there is a tendency for people to lie about those things. And a part of me reads all of these episodes of her saying these horrible things standing in business clothes in front of a class. And I think, did even she really do this? Are these students making these things up because they feel responsible for you know, playing their role as beleaguered you know, students of color at a university? But you know, there's so many of these stories that let's say one of them is made up, but I find it hard to believe that she is not given to saying these things in front of the students. And where you draw the line, the, the line, what worries me is that, and this is messy, but it's just that there's a something that brown students are taught, which is to pretend that schools are these racist institutions and it keeps you from doing your best. That's a way that black and brown students often make themselves feel comfortable or significant in what can feel like a threatening setting. You are a victim of racism that's all around you if you just know where to look for it. Somebody like her reinforces any black student in UPenn's law school um, in thinking of things in that way, and it distracts them from getting a goddamn degree in the law and legal reasoning. And I, I find that regrettable. It's already this, this tempting poison for any student of color to buy into that mythology that college campuses are racist spaces in any significant way. And here she is saying actual, obviously racist things right in front of them. That's an unfortunate distraction. And as we've talked about before, I do wonder how we can expect students not to feel that they're being judged in a certain way in classes like that. And how do they participate in discussion? How, if she can tell who they are grading their work, and I'm sure there are ways that you, you can, how can they not you know, feel like they're not going to be graded properly? How can they feel that comments aren't going to be made about them in faculty meetings that have a bearing on this, that, or the other thing. And it's interesting. I, I can imagine. I can, I'm 22. I go to law school. I'm in a class with this avowed racist person who's making these snarky little comments. To be honest, it wouldn't throw me. I would find it kind of funny, and I would think, well, my job is to show her it isn't true. However, I've learned in my long life at this point that that is a bizarre way of being in our racial situation post-1960s. That is not the way most black students are going to think. It's going to throw them. And I know that sounds so patronizing, and I'm sorry, but it may be patronizing. It's also true. It's going to throw them. They're going to feel scared. They're going to start wondering about their worth, not to mention being distracted by the myth that all the other professors feel the way she does. And I really have a hard time getting past that. They get to campus, and there's always that temptation to pretend that racism is an issue. And he or she is actually embodying it and getting in the news doing it. I, I can't say that I think she deserves to lose her position, but I am 
really turned off by the fact that she does this stuff in class. I used to think that it was that students read things that she said or watched her talking to you and then came to class worried. I thought she stood in front of classes and just played the role of the impartial legal theorist. But no, she doesn't. She performs that role right in front of them while they're trying to learn from her. Doesn't that disturb you? Did you know it, it, that until last week? Well, I wouldn't have put it the way that you did, John. I, I did know, I think, about the specific, I mean, some of the details um, in this bill of indictment that we've seen from Dean Ruger in reference to uh, Amy Wax um, accumulated as a result of an investigation where the dean undertook to go and ferret out evidence of Wax's uh, misconduct, quote unquote misconduct. Uh, is is new to me. I mean, I was not aware of, but the general temper of uh, of uh, Amy's uh, conduct as a professor at the University of Pennsylvania Law School, her um, uh, contrarian is putting it mildly, uh, obstreperous and and uh, outspoken, uh, counseling a student about uh, whether or not to pursue uh, an ambition of being a, a law clerk or something like that, the students of color saying, making some comment about there being a beneficiary of affirmative action and this kind of thing. I mean, I, could, I wouldn't put it past her. I could easily see her doing it. Uh, I just want to put on the record here that um, a couple of things. One is uh, she's been removed from any uh, teaching that requires students to take her courses, so her students are self-selected in her courses. No one has to take a course from Amy Wax who doesn't want to take a course from Amy Wax. Um, grading is blind in the reading of the exams and whatnot. You don't know whose exam you're reading. I take the point about the conduct of class and the students feeling that they are or are not encouraged to participate. Um, Using the students' feelings about her political opinion. So you're calling her a racist now. I don't know if I want to cede that point, but I also don't want to debate it. I see why you're doing it. She thinks that you cannot dismiss the hypothesis that there are natural differences between racial population groups that are relevant to social inequality. That's what she thinks. She thinks affirmative action is an abomination that is, uh, you know, undercutting standards and leading to a lot of mediocre people who are not really quite up to it, uh, getting, finding themselves in places like a first-year uh, law class at the University of Pennsylvania. She, she does think that. Um, can you have a person on the faculty removed because they think things like this? I, I, I'm having a hard time with that. And I'm having a hard time letting the argument, if the students know she think this, they'll be so upset that they won't feel safe and secure. They, they'll feel confirmed in their pre, prior, prior beliefs that the institution is racist. Can't a person think that? Can't a person think, you say, you wouldn't debate uh, slavery, neither would I. But I would debate whether or not the diet of a slave uh, enslaved person uh, on a plantation somewhere was or was not more calories per day than the diet of a working class Irish immigrant in a tenement somewhere. I, I would debate whether or not the use of physical force against slaves was tempered by the slave owner's anticipation of the depreciation of the value of his or her property if they were to whip it within an inch of its life 
and have that be a part of my narrative. That's Fogel and Ingerman, by the way, these kind of observations about slavery, which is to say I can see Amy Wax having a field day on the subject of slavery. It wasn't what you thought it was, et cetera, saying a whole lot of things that would upset people. I would probably not agree with most of those things, but damned if I want to say a person can't say that and can't say it because it would upset the black students. What about the indigenous students? Suppose I want to say the West conquest, the West, I mean Europe, of the Americas was a step forward in the evolution of the human uh, mastery of our, of our uh, uh, dilemma of social existence. It, it expanded civilization. It, in, it enriched. It, it, it fulfilled a certain dynamic that deserved its fulfillment. I don't think that. I didn't say it on my own account. I'm just saying a person can think that. They can think colonialism had benefits. They can think that the, the people who were subjugated under colonialism owe a debt of gratitude, not a reparations bill, to the powers who conquered them because they brought literacy and technology and civilization. They can say that. They can think that. I don't think it. I'm not saying that for my own account, but Amy probably thinks something like that, and damn it, she can think it. Yeah, she can think it, but Amy also says it a lot <laughs> and not in a considerate way in front of students. And, you know, it, it, this is really hard because what the good people want to do is fire her because she's the devil. They want to yeah. fire her because she's a smelly heretic. She right. doesn't have the proper views about race, and therefore she can't be among us. I revile that. But there's a part of me that feels that there's a contingent issue where in our times we have a debate about race that is hopelessly phony, where it's considered a mark of enlightenment to vastly exaggerate about it. And this is everybody. I revile that as well. And what Amy does is help reinforce that kind of thing by being an unusually vocal proponent of what I do think is actual racism in an elite university setting. It disturbs me that she ends up playing into something that is contingent, but so damaging and so hard to cut through. I'm not sure who, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. And so I must admit, I think of a UPenn that did not harbor her as a better place because students would not be distracted by pretending that her presence means something that it doesn't. But that's just my view. And the reason she would be dismissed is out of an idea that she's just evil for the way she reasons about race, which is not what I believe, even where I disagree with her. So it's it's hard. But you do think she's, e quote unquote, evil. I don't want to put words in your mouth in the way that she talks about it, not the way that she thinks about no, it. No, I don't think that, that it's not evil. It. It's it's inconsiderate and irresponsible, given all of the mythology that those students are already swathed in. OK. So she has, a, she has a kind of social or intellectual Tourette syndrome kind of thing. I mean, she has the no governing mechanism on the subconscious thought and things come out inappropriately. Or she, she just doesn't care, you know, which is her prerogative. But that's she's really stirring up the well. And what I mean is, is 
enabling people in subscribing to an already destructive kind of mythology. Okay, I'm going to try one last thing here. Gadfly is a function that's necessary to uh, the discovery of truth and, and the pursuit of knowledge. Gadfly. So that's the person who stands out, uh, you know, uh, ostentatiously stands out from the crowd. The person who dresses in a way that's exactly contrary to gender norms. The gadfly. The person who cuts across, you know, uh, the uh, uh, grain and, and is heterodox in a very, very serious way. Um, transgressive. They, 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 so the, the, the gadfly. I'm saying that's a type and it has its place. I wouldn't start there. I wouldn't end there. But the provocateur has her place. There, there, there's a role there that, that can be played. Um, and therefore, I want to resist the imputation of motive. A lot of your argument turns on this. It turns on a kind of understanding of her motive, which the students can see, and therefore, and so on. And, and, and I want to I just, I, I just focus on the transgression. So you said it a minute ago. You said Dean Ruger is lying about the relative performance of affirmative action abetted minority students at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. He's out and out lying about it. He is. Okay, so underneath that, let me, I'll be brief. Affirmative action is a debatable policy. In that professional environment, at that level of selectivity, it well might have implications for racial differences in post-admissions performance just in the logic of the way in which it's working. The LSATs and the grades do correlate with your performance after admission. They're lower on average for the blacks because of affirmative action. So on average, the performance after the fact is lower because of affirmative action. That, that's just logic. I mean, that, I, you know, I, I don't want to start a fight with anybody. I understand that this is a very contentious issue, but I'm saying it's not crazy to imagine that this might be so. Now, we're supposed to look away, and there are many examples. This Georgetown Law Center example, this, uh, San, whatever that was, Sandra Sellers. Sandra or, Sellers. Et cetera. Uh, uh, Ilya Shapiro's comment about Katanji Brown Jackson and all of the, although that's a, obviously that's a distinct uh, example that has its own thing to be teased out. But, but I'm just saying, you're going to practice preferences and then you're going to not make it possible to discuss the consequences of having so done. So what the gadfly is doing that makes everybody uncomfortable <clears throat> is calling bullshit on that. in class. I never had this issue until learning that she actually does this live and in person. It's one thing to write these things in a specific way in the public sphere. And you get yelled at, but she never seemed to mind that. But to, this is somebody where a black student walks into the room and there's somebody up there saying, you're not as bright as the other kids. I don't know that You're we know here. that. I don't know that we know she said that in class. You know she well, said no, that not, in class. Well, no, not that sentence. But she's saying things that make it clear that she thinks 
You don't belong here. You're here on false pretenses. Or saying them in That's her general in her general writing, saying them, and the kids are aware of that when they come into the classroom. And then she comes in and actually says these things with her live breath right in front of them. That's a lot to expect a black student in our times to tolerate. Very few are going to have the weirdness to not be thrown by that. And also, I guess I'm giving in to something that I often revile. Racism is an issue in our society, and there are certain sensitivities that even I think should be observed. We have a grand question in our society as to what to do about racial hierarchies, about undoing that some races are subordinate, and one of them in particular is superordinate. We have a racist history in this country. And of course, there's an extent to which people do need to learn how to just let it go, get past it. But that's not the only answer. And I guess, you know, to the extent that, you know, I am not a true conservative, I'm not a conservative at all. Part of how I know that is in that I am really not okay with the gadfly going as far as looking these students in the eye on a regular basis and saying, you know, with a giggle, you know, you, you don't belong, that the culture I came from, this, you know, Wonder Bread 50s American culture is better than the one that you came from. And various comments, and I should say again, it's not just one thing, it's not just three. It's apparently the way she teaches classes. I can't accept that. I think it's, it's, Sociopathic is too strong, but it's heedless. You know what, Glenn? It's mean. I told I'm you sorry. you like that word. <laughs> it's very specific. It's mean. It's unthinkingly hostile to people who I think in our sphere, in our times, deserve better. And we can't expect any but a sliver of those students to not be affected by that. I wish more of them would just be able to let it pass, but they can't. You can't fix that. I can't help feeling for them to an extent. Amy should know better. She should be better on this. Wow, I feel terrible. Uh, I, I don't think I agree with you, John, actually, and, and it's making me think it really is. Uh, you put it so powerfully. This uh, sympathy... We're creating a community. I mean, mm -hmm. certainly, if I were if I were running the show at one of these places, I would want warm and fuzzy. I would want everybody to feel welcome. I would I would want you know, and and I'm you know, there's an outreach thing going on. We're self consciously diverse. I mean, it. I'm sorry, but affirmative action is a central part of this whole discussion. Uh, and my feelings about affirmative action are yours. You know, I get yeah, what you mean, roughly, but, but. Well, okay, I think we should terminate this discussion. Amy is coming on The Glenn Show in a few weeks. We don't have a date exactly yet, sometime in August, and it'll post sometime before this school year starts in September, to defend herself against the charges of uh, her dean's uh, uh, disciplinary procedure, uh, which have been written up and which we will discuss with here with her. Not we, you and... Um, me, John, I'll do that on my own. 
here at the at the Glenn Show, but I'm just saying she will have a chance to defend herself at full. I'm giving her an opportunity to um, state her case. So and Glenn, I might say, if the main component of her defense is these things must be discussed. The next step is to say, why? For what purpose? And make sure that she gives an answer other than these things must be discussed. Because if there's no answer beyond that, there is an answer. It means there's something she doesn't want to say. And I... That she has disdain for the people who are most injured by it, I assume you imply. Uh Uh-huh. And that basically I would assume that she's arguing that major components of what we think of as social welfare need to be you know revised that we're talking about an old charles murray argument that there's no point in trying and now, um, here, here's what she's going to say she's going to say i'll bet a lot she's got a little funny aphorism she says i'm a, a speed bump on the uh, road to the destruction of western civilization she's going to say that the stakes are high that you if you ask me to what end to what end must these things be discussed? Because we're going over a cliff, is what she's going to say. We're ruining our institutions, is what she's going to say. We're creating uh, a, uh, a society which is not going to be anywhere near its, uh, what its potential is. Uh, we, we're going to be mired. Uh, we, we're, we're losing our edge. We're, we're, these, these things are mistaken, we, we, you know, she, she's going to say historically mistaken, and I'm standing in the gap, and y'all are just going to steamroll over me, but uh, I'll go down telling you that it's a cliff you're going over, a cliff you're going over. That's what she's going to say. And therefore, the law classes at the University of Pennsylvania should have maybe one or two black students in them, probably children of Caribbean or African immigrants, (laughs) and that most black students should go to third tier law schools like Turo and ones that we've never heard of because that's how the numbers would have it. (laughs) I spoke at Turo recently, by the way, by virtual (laughs) thing. Third rate, you say. Third rate. Why did I accept that invitation? No, No, because Dan Sabotnik, Dan Sabotnik, who teaches at Turo and who you know. I know him. Invited me. (laughs) And also Turo very, you know, very openly talks about itself as third tier. That doesn't mean that it's bad, yeah, but in terms okay. of selectivity, they no, always, it's always... Your point is without affirmative action, most of the kids that are at Penn now would be at some place less distinguished than Penn. And that would be true of all of our excellent schools. Now, we can talk about whether that would be a good thing or not, but is that what she's saying? And is she saying that that's the way probably it would be forever? I think she's in a saying, way, let the chips fall where they may. She's saying it could work out like that and, and the world would not come to an end. That's what she's saying. She's saying, uh-huh, well, where is it written? Where is it written? Well, I don't think she's shy. I, don't, I mean, I'm now speaking for her. I don't think she'd be shy about uh, taking responsibility for ending affirmative action. Ending uh, with the results being that. She should say it. You know, why do we have to talk about it? Is that the reason? She's kind of letting it, you know, she's, there's always this implication and it comes off as if she's dog whistling to Jared Taylor. And that's another thing. Bringing that man into a class? You know, that man? Why him? Well, what is to be gained 
by bringing that man into a law school classroom. He, he, again, I'm going to speculate here. He represents uh, the cutting edge of a white backlash against DEI stuff that is a real part of American politics with which she has some sympathy. Can there be a white backlash against DEI? I mean, not, I'm not endorsing Jared Taylor as such. I'm just saying... I've said this here many times. You keep telling white people that they're the root of all evil. Some white people are going to start saying, where's your civilization? They're, they're going to start counting uh, who created this and who did that. And uh, your shithole country ain't, ain't contributed nothing to the thing. Can't That's going assign, to happen. Can't she assign a reading instead of having that man's corporeal presence in the room? Yeah, she with could. With all the students I, also I, knowing that, that she agrees with him. That's what you do. I, I, I to, take the point. It's awkward. <laughs> I, I take the to point. To a young Ketanji Brown Jackson. And, as, you know, I, I can said, imagine her young. Because I, I was at Stanford you. when she was there. I, I knew Ketanji Brown Jackson's. I was their TA. I'm imagining that kind of student. And here's this man sitting there saying these. It's a bad look, Glenn. I, I, I am almost certain that no student of that persuasion was in that class. Because, as I say, the class is voluntary. So I, right, they, you can taken. see the syllabus. You can see the syllabus before you sign up. So point taken. I, I think but she I had think him there to, anyway. Yeah. yeah. Point taken. But, but I mean, so. there's only a short step from what you're saying to saying if anybody invites Jared Taylor to the UPenn Law School, they should be pilloried because he shouldn't have a, a platform. Do you think that? Do you think that if in a debate about something, uh, the Taylor point of view could be represented at the Penn Law School or at the yes. Columbia Law School? Yes. I do not think it would be wrong for him to step foot on campus and say things. But there's something about, yeah, it's her, given what her views already are, to have him come unopposed in particular to a class is just adding more fuel to the fire. But yeah, yeah, no, he should be able to speak on a campus. Full disclosure, and I hope we link to this. I wrote in the Daily Pennsylvanian, I don't know, four years ago or so, an op-ed defending Amy Wax against the charge that she violated ethics by saying in my presence on this podcast that in her experience, uh, black students rarely uh, ranked in the top quarter very rarely in the top quarter and rarely in the top half of the class. She said that on my thing. And the dean came after her at that time. That has been the route from which this disciplinary action we're discussing uh, has grown. Um, And I said, look, uh, in my experience, I'm just fully disclosing. In my experience, my Asian students have been first rate. I'm talking about teaching at Brown. They've been first rate. Mm-hmm. They've almost invariably done the reading. If they're speaking up in class, they have interesting things to say. This is obviously a generalization, but it is my impression. If I say that, did I break a rule? Yeah, I, I can't say it. Now, maybe it's unwise. Maybe it's unwise under certain circumstances to say it uh, in, in, in a certain way. But is it really a violation of an ethical norm to make an observation of that sort? My Jewish students, et cetera. Is it, is it really a violation? I said, by the way, if she said something that wasn't true, it would be easy to disprove just by demonstrating the, the data. What's the great distribution of, you know? 
So the idea that student privacy precludes you from uh, demonstrating quantitatively the error of that generalization is a very unpersuasive argument. Uh, I said, you're punishing this woman because she has errant thoughts. This is thought policing. I said, this is the same thing as taking an earth science professor who is uh, not persuaded by the climate uh, science community that we need to have a full-bore mobilization uh, against climate change and saying that they can't teach. So, so I, I defended her, and uh, I'm, I'm uneasy with your uh, position, John, but I certainly feel you. I, f- I feel you especially about the student reaction, but can you let students' sentiment, you say they, they don't feel that they can be treated fairly. Where's the evidence that anybody has been undergraded? That, that is a very easy thing to demonstrate. There's the paper, there's the grade. You know. <laughs> Sorry, Glenn. No, I'm that's okay, out, but you've got that light behind. Yeah, I'm, okay. I'm get rid of it. Wait a minute. Okay. People are thinking, where is, where does he live? <laughs> this, this is the, the bungalow. Okay, the bungalow now I'm going to turn the on the skills. I don't blame you, John. I'd be there if I could. So, yeah, Glenn, yeah. I think I'm going to stick right here. Yeah, I good. You're a, good. A lot of the issue for me is just, um, I really am disturbed by this, um, this obsession with a racism on college campuses that essentially doesn't exist. And boy, she just, she stirs right into it in a way that I think is extremely inconsiderate. And yeah, I'm being, I'm being very local about this. I'm being very contented. It's an interesting point. You know, she's making our our job harder because uh, they're overstating the case. And then along here she comes giving them ammunition. I, I hear that. I hear that. I think we've I think we put in our uh, due diligence on the race front today. <laughs> John, we started with Herschel Walker. Uh, thumbs down on Herschel Walker from uh, John McWhorter. <laughs> we got on to Clarence Thomas. Thumbs up on Clarence Thomas from Glenn Lowry. And it looks like thumbs down on Amy, although I'm, 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 I'm <laughs> trying to give her some play. <laughs> and I get it. I, I, I feel you, too. But um, yeah, she's a she's a tough case. Okay, John, talk to you in a couple of weeks, then. Definitely.